0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It is Black History Month, and today we're revisiting some important events in Iowa history. Later this hour, a conversation about Alexander Clark, a very influential Iowan who is best known for filing a lawsuit that resulted in the desegregation of Iowa schools in 1868. But first at the turn of the 20th century when the first generation of black americans to be born outside of slavery was coming of age the town of buxton iowa became iowa's first fully integrated town and the community Thrived. We are going to listen back to my 2017 conversation with Rochelle Chase about the unique history of Buxton. Rochelle has written two books about this remarkable community, Lost Buxton and Creating the Black Utopia of Buxton, Iowa. Hello, Rochelle. Hello. Thank you so much for being
2: here. Thank you for having me.
1: And I want to start, actually, with a little bit of your history, because you've only been living in Iowa for a couple of years, and you're a writer, but you haven't written history before. You've written some romance and (laughs) and some other things. But what drew you to Buxton? How did you find out about this town?
2: Well, in 2008, my the, the my romance instructor, we became really good friends, writing instructor, that is, and she lived here in Iowa, and she says, you know, I've got this town you've got to visit. And I thought, sure, I'm, I'm game. So when I came to visit her in 2008, she took me to the site, and I thought— wow, I can't believe in the middle of, you know, Iowa farmland, this town exists. And so each time I would come back and visit her, I'd go to the State Historical Society and I would collect notes. I'd listen to the audio tapes of the interviews of the former residents. And I was just intrigued and I had no idea what I was going to do with that. I was like, okay, I'm just collecting it. I don't have any idea. And then when I moved here a couple years ago, I said, you know, I think I want to turn that into a book. And I did.
1: And when you say visiting Buxton, Iowa, (laughs) Buxton was in Monroe County, which is in sort of the south central part of Iowa. But it's a ghost town now. So when you went to Buxton, what did you
2: see? I didn't see much of anything. Um, I saw the stone warehouse, which was crumbling, you know, just some walls and, you know, the framework for the roof. Um, at that time, I think most of it was overgrown. Today, the, the Monroe County Historical Society keeps the lawn manicured. But then I think there were a lot of corn stalks and, um, and you know, weeds and such. And so I saw the stone warehouse and then I saw the vault, the, the company vault, and that was pretty much it. So it was really imagining, like I said, that, wow, such a great town existed here. Um, and for the time, I couldn't believe it. Well, let's go back
1: in time to 1900 mm-hmm. when this town was founded. And it was a company town yep. founded by Consolidation Coal Company. Yep. And it was a town obviously founded totally on the basis of there being coal mm-hmm. to mine in the area. As the town got started, though, it started in kind of a unique way with the company recruiting people of all races, yeah. to come and work. And that
2: was really unusual for the time, wasn't it? It was. Well, I should say it wasn't the first time. In about 1880, uh, Albia Mine had recruited African-Americans to to break a strike, uh, mainly from Missouri. They were getting African-Americans. Um, White Breast was another uh, mining company that had also uh, recruited African-Americans. But what was interesting about White Breast, they had built separate housing for the African-American miners to live in. I think um, Buxton and and Mucha Kanak before it, they were the first to really do it on a larger scale. And obviously with Buxton, they were the first to bring, to integrate it, um, to integrate everyone. And like you said, they did also recruit other, um, you know, people from Sweden, you know, Slovaks, etc. And they would reach out to them as well. So I think they were the, the ones that did it most successfully and did it on the largest scale.
1: And when they recruited African-Americans to come and work in the mines, I I can imagine that at that time, companies that recruited African-Americans saw them as a, an inexpensive workforce. But Consolidation Coal Company recruited them kind of on an equal basis mm-hmm. with other workers. They they didn't say, hey, you know, come work for us and we'll pay you half as much as yeah. we pay the white workers. Exactly. They recruited them and, and paid them the same.
2: Exactly. Exactly which is really surprising, too, because when um, Buxton was founded, they did continue that process, at least in the early years of continuing to recruit. And at that time, Buxton was unionized. So the black workers were definitely getting the same salary. So there was no incentive, really, for them to go and continue recruiting. But yet and still they did and don't really know why. You know, there's there's no real records um, from consolidation to show, you know, why did they do this? Uh, Same thing with the Buxtons. Just don't know why.
1: Where were they recruiting workers from? Are, were their employees coming from down south, or, or just a little bit south?
2: No, it was mainly south. Virginia was 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 one of the major um, states that they were recruiting from, and then also people once they got here they would write. You know, once they got here they would write to their family members and and you know have them come up as well. So Virginia, um, Kentucky, just places like that. A little bit in Missouri. So as the town
1: grew, it was almost fifty fifty. Mm African-American and uh, settlers of of European descent. A number of different ethnicities were were represented um, from different countries back in Europe that kind of created their own little enclaves. But it it was up to actually 55 Mm -hmm. percent African-American at one point. Now, you mentioned that that some of these other companies had created separate barracks or or things like that, creating a a segregated community as they recruited new workers. Now. Buxton didn't do that. So as the town grew, what did it look like as as far as racial integration?
2: Well, it's interesting. First of all, to your point, they didn't do that. And they awarded like housing, for example. It was awarded on a first-come, first-served basis. Um, As the people... You know, came. They were obviously paid. You know, equal wages. But they also had the opportunity to start businesses. You know, they didn't have to. You know, purchase things at the company store. Um, they could start their own businesses. So there were quite a few African American owned businesses there in the town as well. Um, and that was also with the where the people settled also in the various areas of town there were some segregated um, areas like swedetown um, east and west Swede town, but it seems like that was more from you know probably the common language also that a lot of times the swedes own their own property so therefore that was another difference with buxton is you did not have to live in company housing so you could lease you know land in the you know areas surrounding the downtown area and so you did have like i said a Little bit of segregation there, but there were some African Americans in Sweet Town as well. So the makeup was was very was very diverse. And of course, men uh, working side by side in the mines
1: is one thing, but then yeah. there were the the women and the children living side by side in the community. And there were a number of schools in Buxton, but the schools were not segregated?
2: No, the schools were not segregated. There were three elementary schools, one in East Swede, uh, one of the Swede towns. And then there were, there's the 1st Street School and the 13th Street School and the downtown Buxton proper area. And they were integrated. They had black and white teachers teaching black and white students. The ones in Swedetown weren't as integrated, but there were some, you know, African-American students there. So they were. Um, the, the company store as well had African-American clerks, men and women working there, um, had about 85 uh, employees and 18 of them were African-Americans. So again, you had this this really integrated, um, integrated town. And I think what is so fascinating about it was just for the time, you know, that you had this not only right in the middle of of Iowa and and farmland, but that you had it in the country, given what was going on at that time.
1: Absolutely, and uh, honestly, you know, there are so many communities today that are more segregated than Buxton was at that time, 117 years ago. Yeah. Um, What about the churches in the community and? Buxton, we need to put this in perspective. Buxton was never a
2: large town. What about 7,000 people? You know, the population has been all over the map. Um, I had been sticking to the five to 6,000 range because... Looking at, you know, some of the census records, looking at the, the number of people that came over from Mucha um, looking at the number, they think they built maybe about a thousand houses in the town and some of the other research that I had uncovered. It seemed like five to six thousand was more of the, the range in, in later publications. Um, but, yeah, it was not really a really large town. And yet you had all these amenities and you had all of this going on. Well, and I think your book consists mostly
1: of photos and and we'll spend more time talking about these really remarkable photos that you were able to share in Lost Buxton in a moment. But I remember reading in one of the captions of the photos that there were Eight churches Uh, in town. A lot of churches. You did (laughs) considering the smaller, (laughs) the smaller size of the community Um, when it came to worship. Was that also something that was integrated, or did people sort of retreat to their
2: own enclaves? No, churches were pretty much segregated. Um, most of the residents said that was the case. And one of them had a story to tell, you know, the two um, churches. There was a, a black church and a white church next to each other, and they used to, you know, sing the hymns back and forth. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what someone had said. So, but they were segregated. Um, people said it was by choice. You know, if, obviously, if you wanted to go, you you were not prevented, but people said that was pretty much choice. But yes, at one time, there were eight African-American churches. There was also a a Slovak church and a Swede church as well. Many, Mm -hmm. many
1: churches for a small community. And you mentioned uh, the businesses that grew up Mm -hmm. in the town. There were also a number of organizations that that were founded in the community. There was a YMCA. And in fact, there were two YMCAs in Buxton.
2: And uh, why were there two? Well, the YMCA was was almost like the, the crowning jewel of Buxton. It was uh, they spent a lot of money on that, and there was actually one that was for the men and one that was for the boys. So that's why there was two because boys couldn't go to the men's Y until they were twenty one. So, but they spent the company had spent twenty thousand dollars in building this, which again it was it was like the largest uh, industrial YMCA. Um, And it had everything. On the first floor, you had um, pool, uh, gymnasium, um, bathing rooms. They had parlors and a library and a reading room with leather chairs and a mahogany pianola. Uh, The second level had an auditorium where they could seat like 8 to a 1,000 people, and they would have programs and people coming in from different places. Uh, The Catholic Church had services on the second floor. They had movies uh, regularly there, and then they had lodge meetings up on the the, the top. And then in the boys' Y, and the two were connected by a covered walkway, but in the boys' Y, they had um, swimming pool, which was heated, and then they had roller skating and dances up on the second floor.
1: Rochelle Chase is the author of two books about Buxton, Iowa, Lost Buxton and Creating the Black Utopia of Buxton, Iowa. We're listening back to our 2017 conversation. Rochelle will also be an expert reader on the February edition of the Talk of Iowa Book Club. We'll be talking about The Color Purple by Alice Walker on Tuesday, February 20th, and we'll talk more about Buxton in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
0: Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at UpstreamFM.com. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at UpstreamFM.com.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Black History Month, and today we're listening back to some conversations about important events in Iowa history. Later this hour, we'll learn about Alexander Clark, a very influential Iowan, who is best known for filing a lawsuit that resulted in the desegregation of Iowa schools in 1868. Right now, we're listening to a 2017 conversation with author Rochelle Chase. She's written two books about Buxton, Iowa, Lost Buxton, and Creating the Black Utopia of Buxton, Iowa. Right around the turn of the 20th century, when the first generation of Black Americans to be born outside of slavery was coming of age, this town of Buxton became Iowa's first fully integrated town, and it was a thriving community. And Rochelle, before the break, we were talking about the YMCA, and I want to talk more about the rich cultural community that developed in Buxton. There was a lot to do at the two different YMCAs and at the churches, of course, and then there were a couple of different thriving business districts as well. Tell me more.
2: Um, the businesses, there were a lot of businesses were, businesses were downtown. There were about 20 different independent businesses downtown. Um, anything from, there was a, a music store. Uh, there were several different grocery stores. There were, um, of course, as I mentioned before, there were bars and, uh, I shouldn't say bars, more saloons and gambling establishments that were on the outskirts of Buxton. did not, Ben Buxton did not allow that in town. So it happened, you know, on the fringes. Um, there was also, uh, a bakery. There were fifteen miners that had gotten together and formed of this bakery and laundry uh, business. There were restaurants. There were hotels. Uh, at least two African American owned hotels there in Buxton, big, big, the bigger ones. Um, there was just a lot also socially to do for for men and women. There were lodges, uh, the the Masons, uh, the Elks. There were or literary organizations for women and men. Uh, The YMC had a glee club. There were um, basketball, baseball. They had traveling, you know, performances come. And there was just a lot going on, not only for us, you know, a town that size, but also it would draw people from the surrounding communities into town. Uh, There was also a lot of commerce going going on with people selling things, Um, not only, you know, the people within Buxton, but farmers and such would come in from out on the outskirts of town and sell uh, their goods. Um, there, There just was a just a a wealth of of businesses in the area. And that was another thing that was a little bit unique in that most mining towns, they did not allow private businesses. They just had the company store. Exactly. And that was it. And you were required to buy from there, and that was another money-making source for the mining company.
1: Well, and... I mean, Buxton did have a company store, and that company store seemed to have everything that anybody could possibly need with clothes and and food and a bank and and all of that. But they did allow these other businesses to grow up and and clearly thrive in that community. Exactly. Outside of school, you know, we have this wealth of uh, archived oral histories that were collected in the 1980s by some wonderful Iowa historians. And they you know, have shared, and you share in your book, a number of quotes from, from those histories with people talking about what it was like to live in Buxton. So outside of school, did the children
2: play with each other?
1: Were there interracial friendships or was this something that was limited to school?
2: Um, the people interviewed were, were mixed on that. Uh, some said no outside of work and, you know, social, like, public things like games and performances and movies, uh, they said, no, we really didn't socialize. But then a surprising number did. Uh, Men would say they would drink and and gamble together. Um, One woman had stated, I think it was Dorothy Collier, had said, no, her mother had, you know, white friends, and they would come over and have quilting parties. Um, It really just depended on the people that were you know, that were interviewed. So they were there were mixed, mixed reviews on that. And mining towns
1: have a reputation, had a reputation for being kind of rough mm-hmm. communities. Obviously, there would be a lot of men in, in one place, not necessarily a lot of families in some of these small communities. And Buxton had its share of trouble. Um, was there a, a major crime element?
2: Well, it depends on who you ask, meaning a lot of the people in Buxton felt like that reputation wasn't deserved. Um, They felt like, yeah, it's like any other town. There are parts, you know, that you don't go into at night, like Cooper Town, Sharp Inn, the the places that had the gambling. You didn't go there at nighttime. Um, But... By the same token, they felt comfortably safe. They left many people said they left their doors unlocked. There was no crime element for them. However, the people that didn't live in Buxton, those were the ones that seemed like that, you know, had said, you know, there were all these sensational headlines about murder in Buxton. And and so they would definitely have the impression that no, this is a rough and ready town, um, and no, you shouldn't, you shouldn't go there. But the people that lived there did not feel that way. And so
1: there may have been stories being spread. Beyond Buxton, that it really didn't have a reflection of reality. Yeah, I mean, and, they, and could have had a, a, a racial motivation.
2: Well, they did say they did say there were murders in Buxton, um, but it was usually around gambling, drinking, domestic disputes, those kinds of things. Um, no one interviewed. They 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 all pretty much agreed they weren't racially motivated. That yeah, you can get in a fight with somebody because of you know some other reason, but it wasn't because of race. Listening to the oral histories. Um,
1: What kind of different perspective did you get from
2: white residents and black residents of Buxton? Um, It was quite different. A lot of the black residents were very, I mean, you could just hear the passion in their voices when they talked about Buxton. Whereas for a lot of the white residents, it was a nice town. They had, you know, a good life there. But it was really more matter of fact and that's also what i was listening to you know when i i wanted to know you know did also did black people really consider this you know a utopia you know was it really that was it really that good you know as you hear about and the residents that were interviewed seemed to feel that way and they spoke very glowingly about it and they also mentioned that when they left it was it was it was a shock to them because some of them had been born there and this is what they were used to. And then to leave from there and, and experience the racism that they did when they left Buxt- Buxton was very was very shocking for them.
1: Well, and if we, again, put this into historical perspective at the turn of the 20th yeah. century, I mean, racism was rampant. Segregation was the norm exactly. all over the country and, of course, especially in the, the South. Um, when you were looking at pictures mm. and this is a just as i mentioned a wonderful collection of pictures from Buxton that just really transport you there and in, in just a moment can you think of of a couple that have really stood out for you that when you discovered this picture it really told you more than than you may have expected
2: I think some of the pictures of the women in their, you know, well-dressed, in their, you know, finery, you know, um, it really spoke to the fact that there were... It was a thriving town that there were people that were very successful. Now, granted, not everybody was. Um, Many people said money flowed in Buxton. uh, There was no shortage. But that doesn't mean that everybody, you know, had money at the end of the day, right? Or, Or that everybody was wealthy. But the point is that there were both, both kind of classes, if you will, in Buxton. And Marjorie Brown was someone who talked about that, that you did have the society, you know, folks who went to all the, you know, the 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 women's clubs and such. And then you had those that had 14 kids and were really, you know, really working just, just to support their family. So I think the pictures of the women, you know, that were Part of the this Buxton, Buxton Society that was very fascinating to me. I think also because mining is so different for me. I you know I'm not from here, and so I really had no exposure to that. When I was looking at some of the actual pictures of the miners, you know, down working, I mean, that was really amazing to me too because I couldn't imagine what it would be like, you know, to 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 work in a mine. So and those it was were, very dangerous. Oh difficult my gosh, work. very dangerous. So that was fascinating, as well as some of the miners' take on that. I didn't realize that also that some of those jobs were considered glamorous by women, you know. So the mule driver, for example, that particular role, you know, some of the men had said, well, yeah, I loved being a mule driver. The women loved me. You know, I mean, so it was, okay, those are my words, not theirs. But still, <laughs> that was pretty interesting, too. I'm talking
1: with Rochelle Chase. She is the author of Lost Buxton. And I know the history of Buxton is something that a lot of people in Iowa have taken a lot of interest in. If you'd like to join our conversation with your favorite Buxton story or with a question for Rochelle, email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. part of the the uniqueness of this community of course children growing up in this community young people being a part of the community they had an opportunity for education that mm-hmm. many african american young people just didn't have right. at that time and right. you did some research about some of the the really remarkable people who came out of buxton mm-hmm. um the first african american man to graduate with a medical degree from the University of Iowa, for mm-hmm. example, can you tell me a little bit more about some of the the people who who really made history?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that was Doctor E. A. Carter, the one that you mentioned there, and he became a company doctor there in Buxton, uh, one of three. And again, he would serve, um He would have both black and white patients, so he wasn't just you know having just seeing black patients. Um, there was also Hope Armstrong. He was someone that pretty much every resident uh, that was interviewed almost knew of. And he was one of the recruiters that had been, you know, had gone down and recruited African-Americans from the South to come work in the mines. But he had really close ties to the company. And so he had the only meat market or the only business there in town that was allowed to use the company's check system. So very, very close ties. And what that means is that they could buy on credit. Um, he also was one of the wealthiest um, African Americans in Southern Iowa. He owned about 1,600 or more acres, 17, 18 farms that he would rent out to people. He had a slaughterhouse. He would buy, um, also buy uh, livestock from from farmers in the area. He raced thoroughbreds. was very well known throughout Iowa for his thoroughbred racing. So he was one that was that was very well known uh, there. Um, George Woodson was also another prominent African American in town. He was an attorney and he had also co founded uh, the Niagara Movement, which became the NAACP, the Iowa um, Negro Bar. Uh, the National Bar Association. So he was very, very much involved there, also had been active in the Republican Party, uh, ran for a few offices, didn't win. But another one, very well-known and very respected by the people in um, in Buxton for being a great speaker and really just motivating people to, uh, to, to better themselves. Now, as I mentioned, Buxton is no longer. Buxton yeah. is a ghost town. Mm-hmm. What happened? Well all good things come to an end, I guess, which is interesting because when they built Buxton, it almost seemed like they weren't expecting that. You know, they had built the town with this level of, of, of permanence kind of in mind in the in the buildings. But in 1914, um, the demand for coal had started to, uh, to decline. And so Buxton had experienced some layoffs. And that was also kind of New for Buxton, since the coal was being supplied for to the Chicago Northwestern Railroad, they pretty much had you know pretty much nonstop work. But in nineteen fourteen, and, and that's that was rare in a
1: coal town because the demand for coal usually just declined in the summer if it right. was something that people were using in their homes. Right. So they had a client who needed coal year round, exactly. which was
2: one of the reasons that Buxton was so exactly, but. They had, like I said, in 1914, that uh, they had the problems with the demand, and then also the mines were were pretty much played out in and around Buxton. So they had opened up, started moving operations to console and um, Haydock, opened two mines there. Um, but things just by, by about 1922, they pretty much had everybody was pretty much out of Buxton, and they were working in. They moved to these other. Um, Camps that were owned by console or by consolidation, um, but pretty much by 1927, those had had pretty much ended as well, and they were no more. Uh, we have a, a question from a listener. Were there
1: any African-American elected officials in Buxton, Iowa? Now, it was a company town, so I don't even yeah. know if they had local government. No, The company they, was kind of in charge, right? The,
2: the company was in charge. They did have, like, uh, African-American constables uh, in town, um, but there weren't really any elected officials except for in the union. They did have some African-Americans that were um, union leaders, um, They did at one time have this organization that they called The Colony, which was kind of this informal—one of its roles was an informal kind of keeping people in check, like if people were being too loud or, you know, someone was being disruptive, you know, they would uh, impose fines on them. And they also—so they had elected officials for that particular organization, but it was—there was no formal um, positions since it was not incorporated.
1: So— when the mine ran out when demand for coal lessened and this was normal for a coal mining town to just kind of die yeah. but where did the people go you know yeah. i mean iowa as we know there are some some moments of of progressive history in iowa when it comes to race but also it's been a fairly homogenous state especially during that time did yeah. the African-Americans who lived in Buxton, did they just leave the
2: state? Well, it's really been a little bit difficult to track down, you know, where the most most of people people went. It seemed like people just kind of scattered. Some left the state. Um, Dr. Uh, E.A. Carter ended up going to Detroit. Uh, some people went to Chicago. Some people like Hope Armstrong had kind of stayed in that area because he owned land. Um, people went to Des Moines, Waukee. They went to other mines. The common thread, though, wherever they went, you know, in Iowa was, you know, here they were doing things in Buxton. And then when they went elsewhere, it was it was going back in time. I, I know one person who was a schoolteacher in Buxton had mentioned that when she left Buxton, she couldn't get a job. You know, she had she was worked as a, as a cleaner, you know, doing domestic work. So it really people scattered all over. But there wasn't like one place that they went to.
1: What do you think the legacy is of this community? I mean, it's a fascinating story. It obviously captivated you, your mm-hmm. imagination and your heart. But what do you think the legacy of
2: Buxton is? I think the legacy is is just the, the principles of inclusion and equality, you know, and the difference that that makes for the success of a town, and also in terms of people getting along and being able to really focus on their own lives, you know, and their own um, goals. And, and I think also showing that that is possible because it comes from leadership, that it comes from, you know, consolidation, setting the, the tone for this is the way this town is going to be. And I think it was a very effective um, example of that. Uh, so I think that is that is a big legacy for for the town. What you know, what you can learn from it, why it was successful.
1: Rochelle Chase is the author of two books about Buxton, Iowa, Lost Buxton, and Creating the Black Utopia of Buxton, Iowa. We're listening back to our 2017 conversation. Rochelle will also be an expert reader on the February edition of the Talk of Iowa Book Club. We'll be talking about The Color Purple by Alice Walker on Tuesday, February 20th, here on the air. You can also join our book club on Facebook. You can search for IPR's Talk of Iowa Book Club. And Rochelle also has a book coming out later this year for young readers about Susan Clark. In just a moment, we will listen back to a conversation about Susan Clark's father, Alexander Clark, who's best known for filing a lawsuit that resulted in the desegregation of Iowa schools in 1868. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
0: Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at UpstreamFM.com.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Today, in honor of Black History Month, we're revisiting conversations about some important events in Iowa history. And now we're going to learn about Alexander Clark, a remarkable Iowan who, 86 years before the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Brown versus the Board of Education, tried to enroll his daughter in Muscatine's Second Ward Common School. When he was denied, he took the district to court, and it was the first successful desegregation case in the history of the United States. That is just a small part of what he accomplished. In 2019, I spoke to Dwayne Coleman, who at the time was pursuing his Ph.D. in history at the University of Iowa, and I started by asking him what brought this remarkable man to Muscatine, Iowa.
3: Yeah, he was a really an amazing figure. Um, I would argue that he is probably the most um, amazing figure in Iowa history during the 19th century, black or white. Um, and that's for a number of different reasons. He, he, has a, he had a long list of, of accomplishments in, in his 65 years um, that, he, that he lived. Um, and uh, he – so in, in coming to Iowa, uh, he was an activist almost immediately. Uh, he came at a very young age. He was still in his teens wow. when he arrived. Um, and we start to really notice him uh, being an activist in the Muscatine community around 55, 1855, uh, when uh, there was a, a, a move by the black community of Muscatine to try to um, get rid of the uh, 1851 exclusionary laws. There was a, an exclusionary act that was passed by the state of Iowa, To exclude black people from entering into the state. And so Alexander Clark helped to organize the uh, community, uh, the black community of Muscatine, to petition the state government to repeal this uh, this act that was passed. Only four
1: years after it was passed.
3: Yes. So, I mean, this was a continuing process. And they can, and, and even after 1855, they continued to, to try to get the, the, that exclusionary law and also other laws that excluded African-Americans from certain uh, civil rights, um, citizenship rights uh, as well. So he, he started from a very early age. Wow.
1: And it's so remarkable even to think of, about him taking on that role as activist. He was trained as a barber, as right. a, a very young man. And that's what he— practiced in muscatine right
3: right his um he was trained by his uncle as a barber in cincinnati um and uh he actually left cincinnati in 1841 and i think one of the reasons why he left cincinnati in that same year a month before he left there was a riot uh, a race riot that took place there a race rebellion in which the white citizens of of, of many of the white citizens of cincinnati tried to expel um, uh, the black citizens uh, from the city, uh, using uh, an, an exclusionary law as well. Uh, Ohio had passed exclusionary laws, and so in moving to Iowa and facing uh, the the prospect of being forced out uh, of Iowa as a result of these kinds of laws, you can see kind of the connection as to why he, um, you know, became an activist.
1: Yeah. What was the black community like? in Iowa in the 1850s?
3: It was rather small. I mean, it it still is rather small today, um, but it was very small uh, during the 1850s and 1840s. Um, But uh, African-Americans have been in the state of Iowa since the territorial days. Um, So African-Americans have have always made Iowa their home ever since, you know, um, other people, uh, other Americans have been inhabiting Iowa as well. And, uh, And so it was very small, but it was very... Closely, it was a very close knit community uh, because the the people had to work together. Uh, And Alexander Clark was uh, influential in in helping to to create those connections, those community connections.
1: Well, in Muscatine, I mean, it's right on the Mississippi River. I can imagine that there was a more flow of individuals coming from different parts of the country. Through Muscatine and and the other river towns, so there must have right. been an exchange of ideas and and people coming and going there.
3: Definitely, it was a, it was a, a a hot spot, a hub for for many different uh, peoples coming through. And, um, and and I think that's why Alexander Clark was drawn to it. I, I think that uh, uh, it was an up and coming city. Uh, I, I, I look at it very similar to the the frontier uh, city of Cincinnati. Um, so I, I think that that's what 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 drew him to, to Muscatine and, and as a result of his ingenuity, he was able to um, become a very successful businessman and very and wealthy in the state uh, in uh, Muscatine.
1: I want to talk about what are called the colored conventions in Iowa. And this is something that, that's the focus of your research right now. But tell me about these gatherings.
3: Right. So the uh, colored conventions movement was a um, was a movement that began as a result of the, uh, uh, the 1829 uh, Cincinnati race riot. Um, and uh, it, the first color convention was held in uh, Pennsylvania, in uh, uh, Philadelphia, in 1830. And the, the point of that movement was to discuss the issues that um, black communities faced um, uh, one of the main questions that many of these, uh, early conventions, uh, posed was whether or not they should even remain in the, in, in the country.
1: Like, should we flee and go to Canada?
3: Right. And so, uh, you know, after the 1829, uh, race riot, for, for instance, in Cincinnati, there were over 2000, um, black, uh, residents who left, uh, Cincinnati, some of them for, for Canada. And so, um, uh, that this movement became a, a national movement, um, and there were national conventions that were held. There were state conventions that were held. There were local conventions, and Iowa uh, had a number of these conventions held. A number of these conventions as well, uh, state conventions, and Alexander Clark was uh, influential in organizing and 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 carrying out the, these color conventions in the state of Iowa. And, and so, Iowa, Iowa, black Iowans asked the same questions. They asked the same questions about um, education rights, about um, uh, citizenship rights here in the state of Iowa. And, and the question was even posed as to whether or not they should remain in Iowa, whether it was even possible for them to receive uh, equal citizenship rights in the state of Iowa. And, uh, and continually, they're, 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 the answer was a resounding we will stay. This is our home. So um, so the colored conventions were very important um, to um, the fight for uh, equal rights in the state of Iowa for, for, for black Americans.
1: The first of the colored conventions that took place, at least that we have record of in, in Iowa, was in 1857?
3: Right. Yeah. So in 1857, so this is two years after the petition that Clark and, and 32 other uh, Muscatine, uh, uh, Muscatine Iowans, um, signed uh, petitioning for uh, the repeal of the Exclusionary Act. And so the 1857 uh, conference was to try to influence the Constitutional Convention that was taking place in Iowa during that time period to try to uh, get certain um, black laws uh, taken out of the the state constitution. Uh, the, The word white removed from the state constitution, which then would allow black people certain um, citizenship rights, like right to, to uh, st- sit on a jury, testify against a white person, uh, education rights. Um, so because of the word white uh, used in the Constitution, it excluded uh, black people from many of those rights.
1: How, I, I'm afraid I don't know my, my history that well, how long did it take for them to be successful in that effort?
3: Well, there were, uh, the progress was slow. And it happened over uh, decades. Uh, it wasn't until um, the 1880s that all of the, um, uh, exclude, or the, uh, the laws that excluded blacks from certain rights was actually removed from the state constitution. Um, but over time, um, the Exclusionary Act, for example, was uh, overturned in 18 th- uh, 1863 uh, during the Civil War. Um, and I think a lot of the reason for that was because of the, um, the activism um, of Alexander Clark, who continued to push for it, the communities that continued to push for the um, – uh, to remove these laws, but also because of the, um, the black soldiers during the Civil War.
1: Who were fighting with the North in the Iowa Regiment.
3: Right. So Iowa – Uh, created an all-black regiment during the Civil War. Um, There were over a 1,000 men who served in this regiment, and uh, Alexander Clark was instrumental in uh, recruiting um, members uh, for that regiment. Uh, He was even known to have given away his... um, uh, the money he received for recruiting, which was about $2, which would have been uh, – and he did this for at least 50 – around 50 men. He gave back that money, those that $2, which would have been a substantial sum yeah. of money during that time period. This, this And the reason being is because he felt that by pushing forward uh, and uh, pushing forward and, and, and getting uh, black men – the right to to be soldiers, to have this regiment, would then uh, allow them to claim citizenship rights. So this was part of a bigger move to claim citizenship rights for black people in the state of Iowa.
1: I think so often when we talk about these moments in history, um, we tend to simplify the narrative. And you're just reinforcing that there was a community, there was a vision, there was a plan— and they worked and worked and worked to move that agenda forward.
3: Right. Uh, you know, uh, Alexander Clark is is little known still, um, but he's one of the more well-known individuals uh, in uh, in the black history, in black history here in Iowa. But there were many, many other people who were actively involved. He uh, men and women, um, and oftentimes the women especially get overlooked uh, in the story, too. But his wife, uh, C- uh, Catherine Clark, was right there, too. She was, she was uh, um, fighting right alongside uh, Alexander Clark, uh, Susan Clark, um, his daughter, um, he, uh, both of his daughters, Rebecca and Susan. Um, in fact, the petition in 1855 uh, has uh, Rebecca's name on it. Uh, what's what's interesting about that is she was only one year, she was only a year old <laughs> at the time. <laughs> so
1: let's uh, let's talk about the school desegregation case, because, uh, again, I mean, this is if you know a story about Alexander Clark, this is the story that, you know, and even this story, we simplify because this wasn't just one man fighting for his daughter's right to get educated. Tell me more about what was going on that led up to this case.
3: Right. So this was, again, a community uh, movement uh, among the the black community there in Muscatine to try to uh, integrate um, the schools uh, in Muscatine. And so um, the the black school that was that they had in Muscatine was actually held in the AME church there in Muscatine. Uh, and the, the black community actually decided to um, – uh, one of the reasonings being as to why the uh, – you know, there, there was no need to integrate the schools was because their black students uh, could go to a black school. And so they decided that they were no longer going to have um, the, the, the black school anymore so that they could make the argument that, um, uh, that the schools needed to be integrated. And so this was this was a community push. And Alexander Clark, yes, he, he took the lead as as he often did. Um, but uh, I think what's interesting about that too is his his daughter uh, Susan Clark was, was put at the head of this. So during a time period in which women, especially young girls, um, and their education wasn't necessarily was a, not
1: a priority a priority <laughs>
3: exactly. Here is Alexander Clark. Uh, and his daughter. Right. Um, and the community rallying behind Susan Clark in this push to try to integrate schools in, in Iowa. I think it's it's very um, profound and, uh, and and fascinating. Um, and, and we have uh, and she later, uh, of course, the, in the in the case, um, they won. They went to the Supreme Court uh, after the Muscatine uh, School Board um, uh, appealed the ruling, which was in Clark uh, the Clark's favor. Uh, I went to the Supreme Court and uh they found that um uh they, they found in favor of the Clarks.
1: It's interesting to me again this was still 86 year, 86 years before Brown versus the Board of Education which is a really long time. Um right. what were the ripple effects uh of this? I mean, did it substantially change life at least for African Americans in Iowa?
3: It, it did. Um and at the same time, too, um, there were other uh, other attempts to try to integrate schools in Iowa, even before the Clark case uh, came about. In fact, after the Civil War, directly after the Civil War, after the men of the Sixtieth, well, Sixtieth U.S. Colored Infantry, who were um, uh, the Iowa regiment, um, after they came home, there was an account that in that I found in my research. Um, of two of those men who later settled in Newton and immediately upon returning home, they enrolled in the local school there. This is in 1865. And um, and there was some, uh, of course, some anger from some of the white uh, parents about their children going to school uh, with these black men. Um, but because, but in using their military service, the political capital of their military service, in claiming the rights of citizenship, uh, and also because of um, uh, because of who they were and how they held themselves too, uh, the community rallied around them and allowed them to continue uh, to integrate these schools. So, so that case there, uh, coupled with you know the the, S- the Susan Clark case as well, uh, helped to. Um, uh, uh, push forward um, desegregation of schools and desegregation of, of uh, other facilities too for, for black people. But it was, it was a constant thing. It was um, something that each community had to work at. Um, but as a result, education became a very important um, part of life for African Americans in Iowa.
1: We talk about the pursuit of education and Alexander Clark himself continued to pursue education. Now, first, his son, Alexander Jr., was the first African-American to graduate from University of Iowa Law School. And then Alexander Clark himself became the second graduate in 1884.
3: Right. Yeah, so, again, education was very important um, to African-Americans in Iowa. Um, And because, uh, again... Uh, there was a, a st- there was a law that actually forbade uh, black people from um, becoming lawyers, and so a few years before Alexander Clark uh, Jr. actually uh, entered the uh, university or the, the law school at Iowa, um, that law was eventually struck down or, or eventually uh, changed. So in uh, 18, 1879, uh, he gradu- he was the first uh, black graduate from um, the Iowa uh, the college.
1: Dwayne Coleman. We spoke in 2019 about Alexander Clark and the lawsuit he filed that resulted in the desegregation of Iowa schools in 1868. Last year, a children's book about Clark's daughter called Susie Clark, The Bravest Girl You've Ever Seen by and Hickey Johnson was published by the Stanley Center for Peace and Security. Later this year, they'll be publishing a book for middle grade readers by Rochelle Chase. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News, I'm Charity Nebbi.